need to open up and embrace it. As I said last week, this image uh, is one I picked intentionally for this series. Um, to me, as I look at that, what I see is in a moment of weakness, an individual is surrendering to the embrace of the risen Son of God. And I suspect many of us have known a moment like that where we felt the greatness of that embrace. In that image, I also see the opportunity we have, each and every one of us, to reach out and embrace the greatness of God. But as I said, I also see that he is reaching out to embrace the greatness of our potential, potential that he put within us from the moment of our conception. As I speak of embracing greatness, I see it and I emphasize it as a two-way relationship, not a one-way street. Through a real, personal, life-changing love relationship with God, and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, God has planted seeds of greatness in each and every one of us. As I said last week, I look at this verse, and this kind of sums it all up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 Christ says, therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So by practicing obedience, by seeking to walk in the way of Christ on a consistent basis and helping, encouraging, teaching, facilitating others in doing the same, uh, invites us, empowers us to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Today my focus is on, let me see if I got it right. Yes, today my focus is on uh, a great savior who is mighty to save. Christ's personal mission statement could be summed up in one sentence. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10, he says, for the son of man, referring to himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. If there was any question about why Jesus came and what his purpose was, what his mission was, he says it very simply and very directly. Now, he says lots of other things and lots of valid teachings, but he boils it down in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when I refer to him as a great Savior, that's because that was part of his part of his function, his person, his, his reason for being here. Um, and again, just to recap my uh, personal, emotional, nostalgic attachment to the music of Chris Tomlin, he has a song called Mighty to Save. And again, you know I'm not going to sing it to you. I forgot to tell you. I told some of you. While we were on sabbatical, uh, Diana and I visited other churches. And this will stun some of you, but at one of those churches on a Sunday morning, Diana and I sang a duet. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. I knew there was a reason you were in the front row. By saying that, I mean we were the only two people in the whole church that were singing. (laughs) Well, we had a great time. I will say we did not get invited to the platform and given a microphone. Uh I'm probably more responsible for that than Diana. But mighty to save. The song goes like this. Well, everyone needs compassion. A love that's never failing. But let mercy fall on me. Well, everyone needs forgiveness. The kindness of a Savior. The hope of nations. Mighty to save. We have a great Savior who is mighty to save. The chorus says, my Savior. He can move the mountains. 
My God is mighty to save. He's mighty to save forever. Author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. He is mighty to save. And then it goes on. So take me as you find me. All my fears and failures. And fill my life again. I give my life to follow. Everything I believe in. And now I surrender. I surrender. Friends, I would simply say to you, if you came here today and you did not have a great Savior, one who is mighty to save, you do not have to leave here without that. Because that's why he came. That's why we're here. Most church folks, you may be the exception, and if so, please don't let me shame you right now. But most church folks really enjoy a good salvation story. The story about somebody's life who was radically transformed by the life-changing power of the risen Savior. Someone who was rescued or redeemed by the divine intervention of the risen Christ. And for many of us, the more dramatic it is, the better. And some of us feel somehow spiritually inferior because our salvation story is rather benign. You know, we weren't off doing something totally bizarre and and we didn't see a lightning bolt from heaven. We just felt the prompting of God in our heart and we responded to an invitation to enter into relationship. Friends, every salvation story is a great salvation story. But before I call out a couple of illustrations from Scripture uh, that I'm going to emphasize today, I invite you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And and this is where Paul lays a clear biblical foundation for our hope of salvation. I'm going to put it on the screen, uh, but I I just want to... I've been kind of gradually working my way back into my regular teaching, and I've been putting most of the Scripture up on the screen and and that's awesome, but I know one of the downsides of my doing that is we get in the habit of either A, not bringing our Bible, or opening our Bible on our device, or we bring it but we don't open because it's easier to just look up there. Just be warned, there will be weeks coming forward that I don't do that. Because I want you to bring your Bibles, I want you to open your devices, because when you go home, you're not taking this with you, all right? I want you to be in the habit. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Okay, that's all of us. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins. That's why we need a mighty Savior. All right? Then it continues, verse 2. Maybe it does. Verse 2, it says, in which you, your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, you used to be that way. Now you have hope of a salvation to be something different. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. In other words, we all started there. Everyone is in need of a great savior. All right, there's no scale of you're good enough on your own. Everyone needs a savior. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, 
following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, we all needed a great Savior. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, we all deserved wrath and judgment. All of us. But by his grace, we have all been given the invitation to enter into the hope of salvation. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is the hope of salvation, folks. Then it goes on. In order that the, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What a great Savior. That he offers that to each and every one of us. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God offers each of us that gift of salvation. The only question is, because remember, none of us deserve it. None of us can earn it. The only question is, is am I going to embrace it and make it my own? It's there. Just like a gift you've received. The key question is, what are you going to do with it? Embrace it or ignore it? Paul continues... Not by works so that none can boast. In other words, I didn't deserve my salvation. I didn't do something so great that merited my salvation. It is a gift. I could not earn it. You cannot earn it. Then verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, I share that with you just kind of to establish a foundation for the great Savior that we have. And I invite you to celebrate that great gift of salvation with me as I review just a couple of my many favorite Bible stories featuring a great Savior. Now, I have to tell you, this is one of those uh, interesting sermon prep weeks, all right? Because I started out with a whole series of messages for this one heading. And one by one, I had to do this painful process of elimination. Okay, I'm going to keep that story. I'm going to not tell that story. And then I got closer to one message. And then I went back and I made another pass. And I cut out a couple more of my favorites to get us down to where hopefully it'll all fit in one message. Um, The the first story that we're going to look at is called, uh, by many different titles, but The Demoniac of the Gerasenes. Uh, Mark tells the story, as do some of the other gospel writers as well. And again, many of you are familiar with this story, but just kind of to give you a, a little bit of a sketch. There is a guy, and I'm going to be politically correct and say he was really messed up. All right. This guy was just a mess. All right. Nobody can control him. He'd been kicked out of town. He lived out in the, in the hills. Because nobody could control it. And then one day, Jesus lands on the shore near this guy. And this guy was literally demon-possessed. And the demons within him recognized the divinity of Christ. And they said, oh, please, don't torture us the way that you have the power to do. 
because they knew he wasn't going to let them stay in that poor man. He needed a great Savior. And so Jesus struck a deal with the demons. They said, just don't cast us into the abyss. Send us into that herd of pigs over there. Well, Jesus, being a good Jew, had no use for pigs anyway. (laughs) So he cast the demons out of the sky. I mean, the, the guy, the demon had a name, and the name was Legion, because there were so many of them in this guy. And he sends them into the pigs, and the pigs say, we don't want any part of this nonsense. And the pigs literally went running and jumped off a cliff and drowned themselves because they wanted nothing to do with Legion either. Well, the person responsible for watching the pigs runs into town and says, you're not going to believe what we just saw. And so everybody came out. They were frightened because of what Jesus had done. They were probably irritated because they lost money with the pigs. And they said, Jesus, we need you to go away. So that's my paraphrase. Let me just look at a couple of the verses that go with it. This man, the one I talked about, lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This guy was so messed up that he literally could not be bound with chains. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. He's that controlled by evil. Did he need a great savior? Uh, yeah, I think so. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This guy is broken and battered to the point that he's abusing his body and cannot be controlled. That's the great savior who came and intervened on his behalf. Fast forward. The pigs are dead. The town folk come out to see what's going on. And what do they find in verse 15? When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind. Hey, what's up? What are you looking at? Never seen a person before? He's normal. He's been saved. What a great Savior. And it freaked them out. If Jesus could do that for him, what might he do to me? Then the people say, Jesus, you scare us. We don't want you around. You need to leave. Jesus said, you know what? Fine. So says Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Why wouldn't he? Huh? If you'd experienced that kind of life-altering event, I, I'm going to stay close to this guy. Jesus didn't let him. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Friends, that's the great Savior that we have. Now, you may not be possessed by a legion of demons, But apart from Christ, we all have issues that need his saving touch. And friends, sometimes we lose sight of in this whole, again, if you've got an imagination at all, you're picturing some guy naked, living in the tombs, breaking, literally breaking chains off from his body. 
crying out all night long and cutting himself with rocks. And then you're picturing this radical transformation. You're, you're trying to wrap your head around thousands of pigs jumping off a cliff and drowning. What a mess! But verse 19, basically he's saying, now that you have encountered a great Savior who has been mighty to save you, you probably ought to go tell people why you're different. There's a whole sermon there that we're coming back to in a couple of weeks. All right? That's my first salvation story. The next one... Oh, all right. So the man went away. I'm sorry. I got to have his way. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, big city, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And again, I, I, I did get ahead of myself. No surprise there. But friends, who's amazed when you tell them about your great Savior and about how he has been mighty to save you? Just a thought. The next is a story about a sinful woman. Wouldn't you love to have your name recorded for all of eternity as the sinful woman? I mean, that's just, that's your name. I mean, any of you have a nickname that you got stuck with that you just loathe, all right? You just can't shake it for anything. I see that hand, Cletus. I, I'm sorry. I, I, Mark and I have a thing, but anyway, all right. But But just think about that. For all of eternity, this woman has the wonderful distinction of being known as, oh yeah, she's the sinful woman. I mean, she certainly doesn't have a corner on the market, but that's that's how she's remembered. And and in this story, many of you, again, know the story. In Luke chapter 7, um, Jesus is ministering to everybody high and low. Average people, highly successful people. And he's invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And a Pharisee would be a, you know, a religious leader. Someone who was well respected in the community. And Jesus is going to have dinner. And, and again, in, in that setting, they didn't sit at the dining room table like you and I did. They tended to sit on the floor and kind of semi-recline. And, and to be polite, you would be the table or the, where the food was was here. And because you don't want to put your feet in anybody's face, your feet would kind of be behind you, all right? And so Jesus is there reclining with this rich dude, this influential leader, and his friends, all right? And this woman hears that Jesus is there. The sinful woman, that's how we know her. The sinful woman hears that Jesus is there and and that, that he's different. And so she makes her way in. And she's carrying with her a very expensive jar of perfume. Now, some people will conjecture, and perhaps rightly so, that the reason she had the fancy perfume was she was a woman uh, of ill repute. And the perfume was part of her enticement. But it was expensive. And she makes her way in, and and she's kind of hanging back, And she gets to where Jesus' feet are, and she begins to weep. I mean, not just a trickle here, there, you know, dab the corner of your, of your eye. She's weeping. And she's, she's over Jesus' feet, 
and her tears are falling on his feet. And then she sees that. And she literally gets down on her hands and knees and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, friends, just picture what the streets are like where Jesus had been walking. Yes, even a great Savior gets dirty, stinky feet if he walks in the dirt. It's just reality. And the host is thinking, this Jesus says he's a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know that it's a sinful woman who's touching him. And he'd say, get away from me, sinful woman. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus hears his thoughts. And he said, you know, a gracious host would have washed my feet or at least had his servants wash my feet. That's the custom when you have a guest that you value. But you ignored me. And this woman cares for me enough that she's literally washing my feet with her tears and her hair, and she's taking this expensive perfume and pouring it on my feet. And you just ignored me. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Wow. Wow. What a great Savior. So we have this man possessed by legions of demons, just really messed up. And we have the sinful woman who's made some poor life choices. Both encountering a great Savior and being transformed. What a great thought. But Jesus is a great Savior to all. The next story is one many of us learned in Sunday school, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man. There we go, all right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors got rich because they cheated people. But other tax collectors respected them for that because that's just what you do. And he was wealthy, so he had a level of social status. He was highly successful by the standards of his peers. And again, the story is very simple. He's got success by the worldly standards, but there's still just something gnawing at him. Maybe there's something more. And he'd heard about this Jesus and all the stuff he was doing. And he thought, yes, I've got lots of money. And people respect slash fear me or fear slash respect me. But what is it about this Jesus? So he heard Jesus was coming and he said, I want to go see for myself. But as we heard in the story, Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. And in a crowd, his impairment did not give him the ability to actually see Jesus. So here's this rich, wealthy, influential person who sets aside his pride and climbs up in a tree so that he can see Jesus when he walks by. Jesus walks by, 
and he sees this well-dressed man sitting in a tree. He makes that connection that a mighty Savior can make in a glance and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to go to your house for dinner. What about reservations, huh? (laughs) But again, the story goes, Jesus goes. And Zacchaeus enters into a real, personal, life-changing love relationship with the great Savior of the world in that dinner meeting at his house. He pledges to do everything in his human power to make right for all the people he had stolen from. Luke 19, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. What a great Savior. And then we started with this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Friends, I hope you get this. Rich, powerful, influential Zacchaeus was just as lost as that demon-filled man howling out in the tombs. They both needed a great Savior. Then we have Saul slash Paul. Paul was an up-and-comer in the Jewish community. He was probably, in his yearbook, pictured as the most likely to succeed young Pharisee. He was on top of his game. Well-educated, growing in influence and stature within his community. To the point that, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, in Acts chapter 7... The, Jesus has been crucified, he's, he's ascended into heaven, and, and the, the Christian movement is, is beginning to, to expand. And as they do that, they begin to offend people. And one of the persons who was brought into the, the inner circle early in Acts was a man named Stephen. And Stephen got up one day and began to speak in a public venue surrounded by Jewish officials and leaders. And Stephen laid out the Jewish history and how they had actually crucified the Messiah that they said they were longing for. And the people became enraged. I mean, some of you probably leave here at times and you don't like what I've had to say. A couple weeks ago, I got here. Fortunately, it was not on a Sunday, but I got here, and there was a box of tomatoes by the front door. And I told Cheryl, I said, I don't know whose tomatoes, but I want those gone before Sunday. I don't want to plant any ideas. All right? No rotten tomatoes. All right. Stephen had so infuriated these people by what he said that they literally, literally, folks, started to pick up stones and hurl them at him. to the point that they killed him. Some translations say in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this says, and Saul approved of their killing him. 
Some translations say that he offered to hold their coats. Hey, you could throw better if I held your coat. You can get a little more oomph behind that boulder you're hurling. And that was socially acceptable. It elevated Saul because he approved of it. We continue with Saul's story in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. So in other words, Saul went to his superiors and said, give me authorization that if I encounter any of these Jesus followers, I can have them arrested. I said, good idea, Saul, go for it. Because he was an up-and-comer in his circles. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now picture this. You're driving in your car. There's a big bolt of lightning. Your car stops. All right. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wow, this is personal. He called me by name. Why do you persecute me? Uh, Who am I persecuting? Oh, my goodness. Is this the voice of Jesus? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, just to be sure. I mean, who of us, if we're hearing a voice out of the sky, would like not want to know who it is? Huh? Like it's going to be any different, huh? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Talk about a real personal life-changing encounter with Jesus. So what it goes on to say is that, that Saul did get up and he did go into town, but he couldn't see. He was blind. So he goes into town. It says, when Ananias went to the house, and, and again, Ananias was, was a Christ follower, and the Spirit of God had come to him and said, uh, yeah, you remember this Saul who's trying to kill everybody? Uh, I want you to go talk to him, all right? He's at this house, you go see him. Ananias is saying, really? Come on. But he does. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. Talk about a great salvation story. And it it just kind of keeps going. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and said, Oh, let's baptize me right now because something's going on. Wow. Again, we got the sinful woman whose life was just headed in the wrong direction. And we've got Saul who was prospering within his School of thought and was highly respected and gaining authority. Both of them encountered a great Savior who helped them get on the path 
they really needed to be on. One last story. Uh, maybe two. The Philippian jailer. Paul, after this whole experience, is on fire. He is even more zealous in telling people about Jesus than he was in trying to get them to stop following Jesus. To the point that just like with Christ, sometimes when he just shows up, he prompts evil spirits to respond. And, and Paul and Silas come walking into a town named, Silas was Paul's, you know, right hand guy. They come walking into a town named Philippi. And as they walk into town, there's a, there's a servant girl and she was demon possessed. And the demons, it's amazing, they recognize Jesus before everybody else does. And the servant girl, she actually made money for her owners because she could tell the future. All right? And, I mean, and, and they made money off them. Well, when Paul and Silas walk in, she can tell what's going on. She starts telling anybody, hey, listen to them because they're from Jesus. And I love this story. Okay? Do you guys find comfort in realizing that the Bible folks are ordinary folks? All right. So day after day, she follows them around. Hey, they're from Jesus, y'all. Hey. Finally, it says Paul's irritated. He says he's annoyed by this. And he says to the demon, get out of here. Get out of her. She'll leave me alone. And the demon's gone. Just because see, she got on Paul's nerves. <laughs> if only it was that easy, getting on people's nerves and you get saved. But anyway, some of us would be all set. <laughs> but what happens is her owners are ticked off because they just lost their revenue stream. So they get Paul and Silas thrown into jail because they cast a demon out of this poor girl who got on their nerves. So what do they do? Paul and Silas are in jail and they're having prayer meeting. They're singing and praising Jesus and praying and all of a sudden the earth shakes and all the prison doors come open. Boom. Their shackles fall off. Boom. Wow. This is a special moment. The jailer, the Philippian jailer, was taking a nap because everybody was chained up and locked in their cells. Why not? He wakes up. You ever wake up and you kind of, what's going on? He woke up and he looks around and he sees the doors are open. He thinks, oh my goodness, everybody's escaped. My bosses are literally going to kill me. I'm going to beat him to it. And he takes out a sword, and he's preparing to kill himself rather than face the wrath for having let this jailbreak take place. Paul speaks up and says, hey, chill. We're still here. The doors are open. The chains are off. But we're still here. Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> Something's going on here, and i got to tap into this. What must I do to be saved? 
They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. We're talking a midnight revival here, folks. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and sent a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Wow. I hope, I hope you understand we have a great Savior. He is not any different today than he was in each of those stories. He is just as capable. What's your story? How has the great Savior been mighty to save in your life? You may identify very well with one of those individuals, or you may just kind of be on a parallel track. For me personally, life was going pretty good. But there's just something missing. I just couldn't put my finger on it until I was presented with the truth of the gospel in a way that was real and relevant to me. Others of you know what it is to be broken and beaten down, to have a label put on you that is not flattering. And hopefully you know what it is to have him give you a new label. Or maybe you're here today because you understand or you're understanding for the first time that you need that. How has the great Savior been mighty to save in your life? Perhaps more importantly, where do you need the great Savior to be mighty to save in your life? He's the same, folks. One last salvation story. Kind of. The rich young man or ruler, depending on which version of the story, let me back up. In Mark chapter 10, and other gospel writers tell the same story. There's a young man. And he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? I mean, he flat out put it out there. What, what do I need to do? And, and Jesus said, obey the commands. And, and oh, well, you know, which ones? This guy didn't go there. He said, Jesus said, obey the commands. He said, got that. I, I've obeyed the commands since I was a youth. Well, Jesus being Jesus is probably thinking, and eh, not quite so much as you're telling me, but okay. He said, I've, I've, I've done that. What else do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus said, I want you to go and give away everything you have. Give it all away. I'm not so sure about this because I got a lot. 
verse 22 says, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. What's your story? Friends, we have a great Savior who is mighty to save in each and every situation in our lives. He offers every one of us the free gift of salvation that will touch every area, every nook and cranny of our lives. However, as portrayed in the story of the rich young ruler, a salvation story that just barely missed it. We have a great Savior who is mighty to save, but he will never, ever override our will. I believe he could, but I believe he won't. If you're like me, and you love people who have not surrendered to him in a way that is real, personal, life-changing, there are times I wish he would. God, save them whether they want it or not. Doesn't work that way. We must make the choice to accept it and walk in it. So, friends, what's your story today? If you've got a salvation story, are you telling it? Are you telling it by how you live? By how you speak? By how you relate to folks? Have you perhaps been like the rich young ruler? You wanted it, but not quite enough to surrender your will? Friends, I I want to make it clear as I share the, the fun salvation stories. His gift of salvation does not guarantee us a happily ever after life. I don't want to mislead you. But it does guarantee us a happily ever after eternity. Would you pray with me? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? I know I know I've gone long, but I, I just want you to just think for just a moment. And say, what's my story? With your eyes closed and your heads bowed. You know what's going on in your life, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind right now. I I just invite you. If you're here this morning and there's something going on somewhere in your life, an area where you need him to be mighty to save, would you just raise your hand and say, Lord, I need you. I need you to be mighty to save. Okay. You know what you were thinking about when you raised your hands. Dear Lord, you know, you know the hearts and the minds of those who just reached out to you. 
It is our prayer collectively that you would be mighty to save. Whatever the situation is, you would allow them to hear clearly from you. For some, it will be as easy as just saying, yes, Jesus, and everything changes. For others, it may be as difficult as that rich young ruler. They may be asked to surrender something that they've been holding on to so tightly their hands ache, but they just can't let it go. Father, I pray that your spirit would well up within them and you would empower them to say, yes, this is what I know, but by faith I'm believing Jesus has something more. I pray that you would meet them where they're at. For those who felt your prompting of your spirit, but they just couldn't quite bring themselves to raise their hand, I pray that you would continue to speak to them. You would continue to comfort them and allow them to understand you have a great compassion and you are mighty to save and you want to intervene in every area of their lives. Remind us all of that as we move forward throughout this week. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.